0: The tragic irony of this present generation is that, on the one hand, it has never been more enlightened, but on the other hand, it's never been more blind. It has developed technologies and made innovations that no previous generation has, and yet it is totally lost when it comes to the meaning of life and its true need. And this, I think, shows us the extent to which we find ourselves in the exact same place as the generation of Jesus' day. Despite the outward contrast of of technology and knowledge and advancement, the core of man's issue is really the same. The essential problem of human nature never changes. And in one way, this is tragic, that all of the science and technology and advancements in knowledge, that they have done nothing to change man's condition before God. And yet, on the other hand, it should comfort us that our problem has not changed. Because if the heart of man's problem has not changed then the essence of God's solution is still just as relevant. The hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ is truly the hope of all generations to make us whole again. And the events of chapter 9 really bring this into sharp focus. Jesus declares himself again to be the light of the world. And then he illustrates that truth by his action of healing this man who was born blind, a man who lived his whole life in darkness. Jesus heals him, turning him, as it were, into a living parable of both our need and the remedy that is found in Jesus. Now, at this point, I want to uh, maybe go back a little bit, not a little bit, but a lot, to the introduction or the prologue of John's gospel. Because in the prologue, what John does is he weaves in themes and motifs that are going to be developed later in the gospel. It's funny, a few weeks ago, I was looking for the term overture, and I was looking at Darla and Mary that... Somehow they would know what was going on in my brain, but they didn't. But it's an overture. It it gives you a preview of what you're going to hear in a symphony. Um, And maybe for those of us who are a bit less cultured, we can liken it to a movie trailer. A movie trailer is a short snippet, maybe about two minutes long, a two-minute summary of a two-hour movie. But what that trailer does is it reveals main themes, it piques your interest, it prepares you to see the movie and understand the storyline. And that's what John does in his prologue. And there are two related themes that, again, come into sharp focus in chapter 9 that I want to highlight. And the first is the theme of what we could call creation, recreation. Creation, recreation, and it's highlighted many times in John's gospel. He opens his gospel with words from the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning was the word. And so from the beginning, John wants us to see the salvation that is brought by Jesus Christ as the beginning of the new creation, where we are made in Christ to be new creatures. But related to that creation-recreation theme is the theme of light and darkness. Jesus, from the beginning of John's Gospel, we are told that he is the true light, that came into the world. And in chapters 8 and 9, this theme comes again into sharp focus, where Jesus twice declares himself to be the light of the world. But in chapter 9, there's an aspect of this light and darkness motif that is emphasized, and that is whenever Jesus, the light of the world, Whenever he shines and he comes to bring salvation and healing, the darkness opposes him. John 1.4, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The implication of that statement is that by coming into the world as the light, Jesus exposes the darkness. And the darkness strives to extinguish the light of Jesus. We see that throughout the Gospels. Jesus is shining in the darkness. But at every turn, the darkness is trying to extinguish the light. Jesus' ministry aroused the darkness, as it were. And that's what we see in chapter 9. What happens? This, Jesus loves this man. He, he heals him. Then he saves him by his grace. But the Pharisees oppose this man. They see the light of Jesus in him. And they seek to extinguish that light, but the darkness cannot overcome it. This chapter breaks down into three stages. There is um, the Jesus' physical healing of this, this man who was born blind. There's the opposition and unbelief of the Pharisees and the man's courage in the face of that. And then finally, in a beautiful way, we see Jesus seek this man out and reveal himself in a saving way to him. So let's first, by thinking about this healing encounter, and, and I will warn you, my, my three points today, they're not symmetrical. So this first one is a bit long, so don't panic. They're not all the same length. The second, uh, the second and third points are much shorter. Let's thinking about this healing encounter. And there are four things that the Holy Spirit, through John, underlines for us as significant. And the first of which is the man's blindness. Now, there are remarkably few records of the blind being healed in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, uh, we find no healing of anyone born blind. And it's interesting, the man brings this up. Never has it been heard of. Nor is it a function that we read Jesus' disciples ever performed. And that means that giving sight to the blind is an activity that is unique to Jesus. There are more miracles in which Jesus gives sight to the blind than in any other category. And there's a reason that this Activity is unique to Jesus. And that's because in the Old Testament it was prophesied that one of the great activities of the Messiah would be giving spiritual sight to blind sinners. We read a few of those Psalm 146, Isaiah 29. Another example is Isaiah 42. Verse 7, where it is said that the Messiah would come as a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Giving sight to the blind was an exclusive function of the Messiah because it is intended to be a picture of the gospel. And thus, Jesus again is showing himself by this action of healing, he is showing himself to be the Messiah. He gives actual sight to a man born blind. But I've pointed out to you before how John doesn't call these miracles he calls them signs in other words they point to something else they point to the gospel they point to the saving work of jesus who gives spiritual sight to those born in spiritual blindness it's significant that this man was born blind it underlines our need that we are born in sin that we are born blind and we need a savior to open our eyes but notice secondly in verse 14 that john underlines the day on which jesus healed this man it was the sabbath day and jesus had done this before Back in chapter 5, that man who was paralyzed for 38 years, he healed him on the Sabbath, and it led to great conflict. In fact, it was after that that the religious leaders began their plot to kill Jesus. And now he does it again, and we should be asking, why? Why did he do that? Why isn't he making things harder than they need to be? This man was blind from birth. The other guy was paralyzed for 38 years. I mean, one more day would not have made a bit of a difference. But he deliberately heals on the Sabbath. And he healed on the Sabbath day to confront and condemn self righteousness and a distorted view of his heavenly father you see friends the same jesus who is gentle and lowly in heart the same jesus who calls to the broken hearted and weary to come to him to find rest this same jesus becomes a fierce warrior when it comes to the proud and the Pharisee of heart. He did this to confront self-righteousness. They had, they had made his heavenly father out to be a tyrant who didn't want anything good for his people. Jesus comes to do battle with them. Jesus embodies the biblical principle that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He opposes them because they thought they were righteous. They looked down on others, they didn't think they needed a savior. And friends, in this truth, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, there can be either great comfort for us in this, or there can be a sobering warning. If you are humble, if you are broken by your sins, if you recognize that you are poor in spirit and you see how much you need your Savior, know today that Jesus stands ready to give you an overabundance of his grace, to forgive you, to restore you, to heal you, to help you. He gives grace to the humble. but if you are proud like these pharisees if you look down on others if you think you don't really need jesus that all you need maybe is a little help from him that you're 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 doing okay you just need a little help from jesus friends when this is our heart posture we need to understand that jesus comes to do battle with us He opposes the proud. That's why he healed on the Sabbath day. It was an act of grace for the humble, while at the same time it was an act of confrontation for the proud and the Pharisee of heart. But then we see next that this whole account began with a question from his disciples. They asked, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, Jesus is not intending to give us a complete theology of sin and suffering here. He says, This man's blindness, it wasn't a result of personal sin. But it's interesting, if we go back to chapter 5, that man who was paralyzed for 38 years, Jesus seems to indicate that he was paralyzed because of his sin. He says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The significance of the disciples' question and Jesus' answer is a matter of what God wants us to dwell on in our suffering. And what question Jesus wants us to be asking. What does he want us to ponder when we are are suffering? Now, hear me correctly. We can and we should... We should ask questions like this, especially when it comes to ourselves. When we suffer, we should examine ourselves. We should ask, is my suffering the result of some sin in my life? In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul urged this sort of self-examination. He told the Corinthians, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. He's saying, you you are suffering because of your personal sin. But we know this isn't always clear. There's not always an easy answer to that question, because after all, suffering is a result of sin in general. So rather than driving ourselves crazy, trying to figure out why, Jesus says, the question I want you to dwell on is this. How will God be glorified in this suffering? Jesus said this man was born blind so that God might display his mighty works and bring glory to himself. You see, Jesus' answer assumes that God is good, and then he has a purpose in our suffering. I read an interesting snippet from one of Joni Erickson Tata's, I don't know if it was an interview or a book, but many of you are familiar with her. She was paralyzed at a young age, and and she related how people would ask her what book has helped you the most, and what people expected was her to uh, reference some kind of self-help book that helped her helped her get through this. But her answer, what book helped you the most, was Lorraine Betner's "The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination," because it gave her comfort in the fact. That the Lord had a purpose in her suffering. The question, finally, the means that Jesus uses. If you look at verse 5, Jesus makes another declaration of his identity. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he backs this up or he illustrates it with a a tactile sign and an auditory sign that underlines that he is indeed the Messiah. We read that having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus is bringing together two things here there this is a callback to the creation account when god made man from the dust of the earth here's that creation recreation motif jesus the creator is also the great recreator and redeemer and then he tells him to go wash in the pool of siloam which John gives us the definition of, which means sent. And this, too, underlines Jesus' identity. Because no less than 17 times in John's Gospel, Jesus is referred to as the one who has been sent from his Father. Sent from his Father. To bring salvation to sinners. And so like the other signs that Jesus performed, this is not just some fascinating miracle that changed the life of one man 2,000 years ago. But rather it's part of God's message of hope to a hopeless world. It illustrates to us both the world's great need in its sin, but also the Lord's gracious answer in his Son. As we read on, we see the the darkness trying to extinguish the light as this man is investigated by the Pharisees. And we secondly then see the, the opposition of, of these men, but at the same time, the courage of this man who now has the light of Jesus. And again, John is picking up on this theme from the prologue. Jesus, the light of the world, has shone in this man's life. Now we see the darkness trying to extinguish the light. Trying to get this man to deny Jesus. Now the heart condition of these men is revealed in their irrational attitude. It's revealed in their cruel abuse. You'll notice how they they deny the obvious. And they insult both the man and Jesus. They latch on to the fact that Jesus healed on the Sabbath and seek to discredit him. And their reasoning is so pathetic that even some who are with them expose their lack of logic. Verse 16, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? But I would submit to you, this interrogation is an example of the light shining in the darkness and the darkness not overcoming it. Because what's amazing about this interrogation is, here is a man who was a blind beggar. No education, no social standing, and here he stands before the highest court in the land, the the wisest the most well-read, the most respected theologians and leaders of the day. And they look like fools compared to this illiterate beggar who is filled with wisdom and courage. He makes this bold confession in the face of intimidation, in the face of opposition. Look at verse 26, and notice how they they keep repeating their question, and he calls them on it. They're, they're trying to catch him, to, to twist his words. Verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind if this man were not from god he could do nothing so here's a man who essentially knew the scriptures better than they did he points out that this this is a function of the messiah to heal someone born blind and and here's their comeback you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. This is striking. It's amazing and it should be an encouragement to us. It speaks to the wonderful transformation that the triune God works in the hearts and minds of sinners. We could see this as Jesus making good on his promise in Matthew 10 when he he told the disciples Don't be worried when you're delivered over to unbelieving authorities. Don't worry what you're going to say because the spirit of your father will speak through you. We need to let that encourage us should there be a time that we are hauled before unbelieving authorities to trust that the spirit of our father will give us the words to speak. Now you'll notice at this point, Jesus is out of the picture, and it seems like the hostility is directed just against this man, but in the end, the hostility is against Jesus. Because as we think about what happens to this man, what we have is a dress rehearsal for what they will do to Jesus. At his trial and execution. What do they do to Jesus? They bring him before the council. They interrogate him. They keep repeating their questions. They insult him. They revile him. They condemned him and reject him. And they cast him out. Not out of the synagogue. But out of the city. To be crucified. And yet the darkness did not overcome the light. Thirdly and briefly, let's think about now the saving encounter we see with Jesus. So this man is, he's been excommunicated from the synagogue, which would have been utterly devastating. It would have been life altering. But in verse 35, we find these beautiful words. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him. Jesus sought this man out. He found him. This man didn't seek Jesus, but Jesus sought him. Again, another illustration of what the Lord does for us and salvation he seeks us we never would have sought him but in pity he seeks us out and shows us his grace and again i want you to notice the different ways in which jesus deals with the proud and self-righteous and how he deals with the humble and the broken Here, Jesus is showing grace to the humble. He brings this man to saving faith. The man progressed in his understanding. This man had begun in verse 11 by saying, it was the man, Jesus, who healed him. Then he was being interrogated. He said in verse 17, he's a prophet. You can see him moving on in his understanding until finally In these verses, Jesus brings him to a full-orbed faith, and he reveals himself to be the Christ. And Jesus uses that messianic title for himself from Daniel 7. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And sir, who, who is he that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And the story ends with those who have sight being blinded in their unbelief and the blind beggar seeing. It's a picture of the gospel. It's Jesus being the living embodiment of that principle that God gives grace to the humble. But he opposes the proud. And I think, friends, we need to remember this. I think in our day and age in American Christianity, we we see this toned down version of Jesus. This gentle and lowly Jesus. And we need to have this balance. He does give grace to the humble. He does reveal himself as gentle and lowly to the contrite. But that same Jesus will not tolerate the proud and the self-righteous. He will not tolerate those who reject him and instead choose the religion of their own righteousness. The religion that says, I really don't. Need Jesus. Religion that distorts the gracious character of His Heavenly Father. We have seen in our study of John the gracious and kind character of Jesus, how He is kind to the humble, how He helps those who are broken he shows his love to those who come to him in faith but friends this grace of jesus it's a holy grace it's not for everyone it's reserved for those who are poor in spirit those who confess their need for jesus and embrace him for those who are proud those who are righteous in their own sight, those who think they are well. There can be none of this wonderful grace. Jesus opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I think the poignant question for us today is what is our heart posture before him today? Do we recognize our Great need? Is our posture before our King one of humility? Or do we see ourselves as people who are doing okay and just maybe need a little bit of help from Jesus? Friends, if you are humbled before him, know that he is ready to pour out his grace upon you. But today, if you are struggling with pride and self-righteousness, heed his call to humble yourselves before him, that he might lift you up. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, your word is truth. And we trust in the words that our Savior prayed in the upper room, that you will indeed sanctify us by that truth. Lord, we pray that you would reorient our perspective, that we might remember that we were born into this world as blind beggars. And that it is only through the grace and mercy and pity of the Lord Jesus that we now see. Lord, may we look to the cross of Jesus, and may that humble us before you. And we pray, O God, as we humble ourselves, as we feel the sting of our sin, Lord, may we be comforted and lifted up by the grace and mercy of our great Savior. We pray that it all might be for his glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.